Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. Mother Nature has been all over the place, but I think she has finally settled in to a routine of nice spring weather. Welcome to this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. March Madness is almost here for college basketball fans, and that means it's time for Pulled Pork Madness for Iowans who love delicious pulled pork sandwiches. The Iowa Pork Producers Association is accepting nominations for the restaurant that serves up Iowa's best pulled pork sandwich. The annual contest started Friday morning. Nominations can be made at the Iowa Pork Producers Association website at iowapork.org. Now in its seventh year, Pulled Pork Madness highlights the best of the best when it comes to serving up delicious Iowa-made pulled pork. Whether your favorite pulled pork is sandwiched between two buns, open-faced, or smothered in cheese, Iowa Pork wants to know where to find it. The winning restaurant receives $250, a plaque, and statewide bragging rights. In other news, not one but two tracts of farmland in Sioux County, Iowa, sold for a near-record $29,600 per acre in a public auction this past week. In November of 2022, a sale of 73.19 acres in the same county sold for the current state record of $30,000 per acre. A spokesman for Zomer Company Realty and Auction confirmed the Ken and LaDonna Heisman farmland sale totaled 117.41 acres on February 27th. The first tract of land was made up of 40 acres and featured half-mile-long rows. With a road and ditch on only one side of the field, 98.7% of the tract is tillable. Number two is 77.41 acres that are also bordered by one road and is 98.7% tillable with half-mile-long rows. And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with this faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. There was an American writer and professor of biochemistry at Boston University whose name was Isaac Asimov. And he said, people who think they know it all are a great annoyance to those of us who do. Well, I'm pretty sure that I'll never be called a know-it-all. I'll bet we've all known some pretty smart people and some that really do know a lot, but I'm not one of them. Fortunately, this lesson was learned early in my youth. As a junior in high school, I had the privilege of taking an advanced class called senior math. For weeks, it was mystery hour and all the tutoring, including my dad's help, could not pound the basics of this course into my head. I never got close to knowing it all. And in college, in Animal Science 318, I encountered the Pearson Square. And frankly, it was never square when it came to my calculations, and Dr. Jurgens just shook his head. And maybe the most humbling of not knowing it all was a college course in genetics and the final exam, there were two pigeons, as I recall, on the top of the page, each being identified somehow genetically. And at the bottom of the page was a pigeon, its genetics also identified. And the idea was to list in a progressive manner of steps how those two pigeons on the top of the page produced the pigeon at the bottom of the page. Well, I placed the correct date on the test. You got credit for that and signed my name and turned in the exam. Oh, to know it all, even if I had a wish like that, to be able to know what someone is thinking, to know exactly the right thing to say, to even know what the future will be. However, 
we can get a few clues to at least help us remove some of the unknowns. We know, for example, that history is a great predictor of the future, and the experience of others can certainly be an ally. And of course, mistakes we make give us experiences at least to try not to make the same mistake twice. And so it goes. A lot of us learned a long time ago that not knowing at all is really not a bad thing. But maybe more importantly, making the most of what we do know, that is a good thing. To this end, in Romans we read, Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks for his monthly chat with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Now that the calendar shows March prep for the 2024 planting season is well upon us, and we'd like to remind you of a few extra steps to help reduce the safety risk during the heat of that planting season. There's the obvious, make sure all that safety equipment is in proper working order as part of your routine preparations, but also try to rest up as chronic fatigue can have the same effect on your body as drugs and alcohol, and slowed reaction times can be dangerous. This message furnished by the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Well, we're on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network in time for our monthly sit-down with Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag. Secretary, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us today. Hey, always good to catch up. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is you were just in Mexico. And, of course, Mexico, one of our mm-hmm. hugest trading partners and, of course, a member of the of the USMCA agreement with us. And we've had a little bit of a concern with where that's going to be going with agriculture trade in the future. Tell us a little about that trip and some of the things you learned down there. Yeah, we had a great trip, uh, a group of, of farmers, uh, soybean growers, corn growers, pork producers, beef uh, producers, really nice representation of Iowa. And, you know, Mexico is such an important market for us. You know, it's so Canada's number one, uh, Mexico's number two in terms of volume. Uh, the U.S.-Mexico overall bilateral trade relationship is the most valuable in the world. And obviously that's more than just agriculture, but just I think that helps set the stage for why is this so important? It's our number one corn market. It's our number one pork market. It's uh, number two in soybean meal and soybeans. Uh, DDGs, you've got, I mean, just a lot of material that's going back and forth uh, between countries. We visited the western part of the country, which is really a lot like Iowa, a lot of livestock production, manufacturing. And so we've got trains that are, you know, going back and forth between Iowa and uh, western Mexico, you know, for their livestock production. And then on the eastern side of the country, down in the Gulf, on the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, that is where you'll have product that's coming down the Mississippi and across the Gulf of Mexico. We have this huge logistical advantage uh, over other countries selling into that that marketplace. So really important place for us. And, uh, you know, what we came back knowing and learning is that there is a, a strong demand for our products. People like doing business with us. We've got a, we're a consistent quality supplier, all the things that we know. Uh, but there is even more room to grow uh, this market. There are some headwinds. 
Uh, one being, of course, the way that Mexico is that the president, Mexican president, uh, you know, was was over the last couple of years trying to do things like ban the importation of GMO corn into Mexico. There's not enough non-GMO corn in the world to supply that marketplace. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, U.S. is in dispute resolution with Mexico through the USMCA and uh, really hopeful that by the end of this calendar year, we'll see a resolution to that and that, that, that it will have been ruled in our favor. Now, obviously, in those situations, you can't be down there to negotiate anything like right. that. But when you have the chance to talk with those people down there about the situation with the GMO corn, I mean, what kind of things are you hearing back from them and what kind of things are you sharing with them about it? Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we uh, trade deals are negotiated at the federal level. That's absolutely true. What can states do? You know, we're really there representing our agriculture, our farmers, our businesses. And, you know, in, in this way, we are very much of like mind with our customers in Mexico, right? They're concerned. They, they understand just like we do that, uh, you know, things that drive up the cost of production, drive up the cost of food and the Mexican consumer cannot, cannot absorb that kind of cost. And, you know, so they're, they're fighting for their existence. They're fighting for their freedom to operate. And what you can do is sort of commiserate with them, but also say, Hey, the state of Iowa, our representation, the governor, the congressional delegation, we're working to try to bring resolution to these things. We are pro-trade, uh, you know, just to be able to reiterate, not not just talk about the logistics and the quality and the supply of the products, but also talk about the fact that we are advocating for policy that really benefits both uh, both us as producers and them as as buyers as well. So is there any room or potential for growth that you saw while we were down while you guys were down there? It, definitely. You know, uh, both on the grain side in terms of, you know, they uh, again, they, they are uh, western part of the country, Jalisco. They're number one in pork and egg and broiler production. I mean, imagine the corn and soybean demand uh, to uh, to feed those those animals. Here's the other thing to think about. You know, we export a significant amount of pork into that marketplace. Now, we're not exporting whole carcasses of pork. We're exporting particular cuts. Cuts that, you know, are not desirable in the U.S. or cuts that, you know, for instance, Japan wants a certain cut. Uh, Mexican consumer, Mexican processors want a particular cut. So you might be exporting 100% of one cut uh, to one of those markets. So that's the way we need to think about trade and exports is that it's uh, it's not, it's very compatible. You know, the things that we use are not things that they use in that carcass. And so that's the important thing to remember is how are how are our trading relationships compatible? And certainly with Mexico, uh, there absolutely are. The other piece that came up was just some concerns about, you know, the logistics. Right. We had a, a unfortunate uh, border closure, uh, you know, uh, around Christmas time in terms of rail. Uh, clearly, that was unacceptable. That had disruption on both sides of the equation. There's a border security issue that has to be dealt with. But we need to keep commerce moving across that border. And we were, again, able to talk about that. And, and those were definitely concerns that folks raised uh, when we were down there. All right. So shifting gears now, we did just last week get a, finally get a decision almost two years late on the E-15 petition that Governor Reynolds led with other Midwestern governors. Now, we, we got kind of the answer we were hoping for, but not necessarily in the timetable we were hoping for. Yeah, that's right. This is a good news, bad news situation. And, you know, so you've got Governor Reynolds and, and eight states, you know, in the region that have asked for a waiver that will allow us. So you've got this summer fueling season that that we've been dealing with. There's a cliff where you can sell E15 for 
the winter time of the year, but for the summer fueling season, it's it's you can't sell it unless you've got a waiver in place. We've always had for the last several years an emergency waiver that's allowed for that E15 to uh, to flow. There's nothing wrong with that product using that product in the summer. It is purely a technical piece of language or a technical rule that EPA has to enforce or chooses to enforce related to it. So it's not even that it's an environmental concern or a consumer concern. It is just this technicality that has prevented us from having the certainty we need to burn E15 year round. The governor's waiver will allow for that. Uh, But EPA waited and waited to grant that. And as you say, finally, Months after they should have already made a decision, frankly, it took the attorney general, Brenna Bird, and some of her colleagues to sue the EPA to force them to make that decision. Uh, and here's the crazy thing. They've allowed it, but it takes effect in 2025. And that's just silly. I, we, we all look at that on its face and say, that's just silly. Uh, what happens in 2024? Well, we'll have to see uh, whether we can, again, achieve those emergency waivers that we will need. I'm hopeful that we can, but that's certainly the next step for us is to try to bring that certainty that we need. Let's go year-round access to E15 countrywide. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for consumers? Yeah, that definitely would be. I know the Iowa delegation just talked with Iowa's uh, Congressman Zach Nunn this morning, and they've penned a letter to the EPA saying, why are you waiting to 2025? Do it this year. Mm-hmm. And kind of in from the 30,000-foot view is what they've kind of told them today. Mm-hmm. Uh, abs- absolutely. And again, this is, first of all, EPA could have done it a lot sooner and uh, they chose not to. And then the decision to take it out to 2025, it, it, I, I can't explain it. I, I don't know the reasoning. I don't understand the logic, especially when you can look at it and say, and, and we know this experience in Iowa, when consumers have a choice to burn unleaded 88, they pick it. Why? Because it's a lower price, higher, the highest octane at the lowest price, right? And that's a, that's a great thing for consumers and for performance, for the environment and for our renewable fuels industry. So, I mean, we sort of get this uh, and, and wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, again, consumers could have that opportunity to save that kind of money year round and uh, support a domestic renewable uh, industry. I think there's just too many wins to stack up to say, why are we, why are we struggling as a country to get this uh, get this locked in where we can have the certainty to use E15 year round. All right. And wrapping up today, we, we started last month talking about some of the legislative initiatives that are going on in the state, including the foreign land ownership and the updates to the, the laws we have on the books there. And also talking about the poultry processing legislation. Any uh, update as to where those are sitting right now? Yes, the foreign ownership uh, legislation has now passed and is headed for the governor's desk. Uh, I think it's a it's a great thing. It had lots of support. And again, it's very logical, right? What we're trying to do is strengthen and just build on strength. Uh, Iowa has had model laws on the books about preventing the foreign ownership of farm ground into perpetuity. And uh, what we are doing with this legislation, again, worked with the Governor Reynolds, with Attorney General Byrd uh, mm-hmm. on this to give the Attorney General the tools that she needs to enforce, to create some stiffer penalties, just as a deterrent to people that might want to challenge our laws and also to create more transparency in reporting. These are all things that allow us to say, not only do we think we've got the best laws on the books, we know we do because we, uh, we, we've got transparency to that, and visibility to that. So it's good news. I'm really thankful for the legislative support for this and, and uh, anxious to see the governor uh, put, put her pen to, uh, to paper and, and sign that bill into law. Poultry processing continues to move. Again, this is about streamlining and, and uh, you know, uh, simplifying, if you will, the regulatory 
pieces around poultry processing. We continue to hear that it's a challenge to find that processing in Iowa. We want to do what we can to try to at least advance that cause uh, somewhat. All right. Well, Secretary, I thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us and taking time out of that busy schedule of yours. Uh, absolutely. It's uh, it's always good to go to represent Iowa, but it's always good to come home. And I'm certainly feeling that way. Uh, and love love that we uh, we get to do what we do from right here at Iowa. And that again was Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag here on Weekend Ag Matters. Mark Magnuson in to wrap up the show coming up after this. If you thought soybeans were only used for tofu, think again. From tires and adhesives to next-generation asphalt, soy is used to create over 1,000 industrial products and counting. Thanks to your soy checkoff investment, the sky's the limit for Iowa soybean farmers. Oh, and speaking of skies, did I mention soy is also used in sustainable aviation fuel? The Iowa Soybean Association, powered by the soy checkoff, is driven to deliver for Iowa's 40,000 soybean farmers. Learn more at IASoybeans.com. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Joined today by Aaron Lehman of the Iowa Farmers Union. He is president of the Iowa Farmers Union, and you are listening to the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here today. Today, we want to talk about the importance of the Farm Bill and specifically some of those climate smart practices that are potentially, you know, benefiting from the Farm Bill in getting some a little bit of financial assistance. Aaron, first of all, why is it so important when we think about the Farm Bill that we think about these climate smart practices and why they need to be implemented by farmers here in Iowa? Well, these voluntary incentive-based practices farmers have been working with for years, and they've done a very good job of helping farmers improve their soil health and take care of their resources on their farm while keeping their farms uh, profitable, as profitable as they possibly can be. And so there were some huge investments made in this area, which is great because farmers have been signing up, As uh, but sometimes the monies haven't been there. Quite often, the monies haven't been there for these practices. So these additional investments are making a real difference. So, Aaron, we're talking about these voluntary practices. And like you mentioned, a lot of times farmers have already been implementing these. It's just now they can get a little bit of a financial compensation that can add an extra revenue stream to their farm. Yeah, that's important for farmers to, we want our farmers to be able to diversify their revenue stream uh, and at the same time, build their soil health and their soil profitability over the long term. Uh, so these pro- these programs can serve a dual purpose in that way. Why is America's food security, why does it depend so heavily on federal investments in the Farm Bill and then also the Inflation Reduction Act? How does that help? Yeah, the Farm Bill sets our direction for farm policy for five years at a time. And it's a it's been a fantastic way for our uh, policy to unify our food nutrition needs and solidify the the security of our farmers so making these proper investments in conservation in uh, the safety net in crop insurance uh, and in nutrition programs 
all fit together so that we have a coherent policy that we can uh, be uh, proud of to serve as farmers um, and, and uh, make a living as farmers. At the same time, we're serving the food security needs of our country. We know that it's not only the public, the consumer that wants to see these climate smart practices implemented, but a lot of farmers as well, and specifically younger farmers. Aaron, have you seen that specifically, that younger farmers very invested in these sustainable practices? Absolutely. They, we, we've seen uh, young farmers be uh, very early adopters of these conservation practices, these soil health practices. They know that these things uh, are essential to the long-term health of their farm. So we, we see this especially benefiting new and beginning farmers. And we see in the farm bill tug of war that's taking place right now, of course, there's discussions on should money, more money be earmarked for food programs, should more money be earmarked for farm programs, and then you have the back and forth poll. Well, why is it so important that we should not divert federal funds intended for conservation in that you know discussion that's going back and forth between the farm bill and trying to get ultimately across the finish line? Well, farmers have been... Uh using these practices, they're proven practices that help their farm, that help the, our, our natural resources. But a lot of times the, the, the applications just don't get funded because they have been chronically out of money before farmers uh, were able to access them. So we, uh, it's time that we reward farmers who want to step up and, and take these steps on their farm. Uh, and we shouldn't do that at the expense of the rest of the Farm Bill priorities, which are all extremely important. They all work together, but we shouldn't be turning one uh, piece of the Farm Bill against the other. Why do sustainable practices reduce market uncertainty? Why do they prompt farmers to innovate and, you know, be those creative farmers that we know they are? Yeah, you know, these innovations come from the land, right? They, they spring right from uh, those that have been working for the land for decades. Um, and that ties these practices to make sure that they're actually making a difference in the field, in our pastures, on the ground, in our rural community. So having these pieces in place um, makes makes our overall stability of our food system even stronger. Uh, we know that we could that uh, farmers who are forced to make short-term decisions with their land do so knowing that it isn't in their long-term health for their farm or for their community or for the natural resources. So if we want to really have a truly healthy food system, we have to make these investments, encourage farmers to make these investments. And then just to wrap up here, Aaron, why does clean energy make farms and other rural businesses more profitable? Why does it make that community even stronger? Yeah, you know, we, we know that farmers uh, can be leaders in clean energy. Uh, and we often relate it back to, you know, when, when this country became electrified uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, rural areas were going to be left behind if we didn't make sure that were that there were rural electric uh, electrification programs that made sure that rural areas took part in that revolution of electrifying our countryside. The same goes now. We need to make sure that our rural areas don't get left behind when we explore green energy solutions. In fact, we should be the leaders in green energy solutions because uh, farmers are good, uh, have the resources and have the connections to uh, the land that make them uniquely qualified to 
uh, take advantage of these uh, sustainable energy opportunities. And then, Aaron, just to wrap up, Aaron Lehman, our guest here today of the Iowa Farmers Union. When you think about uh, the things we've discussed here today, why it's important to have funding for these programs in the Farm Bill, is there anything else you'd like to impart to our listeners here in the state of Iowa? No, I just want to, I guess the last thing I would say is it's so important to us to, to realize that all these pieces have to fit together in order for us to have a Farm Bill that provides food security for our country, um, uh, profitability for our farmers and takes care of our natural resources. They all have to work together. Uh, and if you have one side that isn't working, then the whole whole structure starts to go downhill. So making sure that each of these pieces is strong, uh, it should be our goal. Just on your very last point there, that's interesting because we've heard it so many times from the politicians, the lawmakers that are crafting these bills, that the farm bill is usually such a collaborative effort. And this time, this time around, it has been more, a little bit more of a back and forth on the tug of war between the two sides and the different groups. Is that why it's so frustrating this time around with the farm bill process? I think it is. And, you know, I, there's a lot of agreement on the farm bill. So let's let's start and build off of that agreement that we can find and try to put prioritize uh, making a broad picture, big picture farm bill that we can move ahead. There's a lot of divisiveness going on in Washington, but in the past, agriculture has always shown that they can cross those lines. Sometimes they're political lines, sometimes they're regional lines to come together to make a strong package together. Uh, yes, we're being tested this year and it, it does look challenging and we're coming into election year, so it's gonna be even harder. But there, the reasons to work together are even stronger. So we're encouraging all our lawmakers to, to, to rise above those differences and come together on, on some common sense farm bill pieces. He is Aaron Lehman, president of the Iowa Farmers Union. Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here today. Appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate it so much. Thank you to Aaron Lehman, president of the Iowa Farmers Union, for that interesting conversation about the farm bill. That wraps up segment number three, and it wraps up this week's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. You can find this episode and all of our previous episodes of Weekend Ag Matters on the podcast page of our website at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Riley Smith, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week for Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network.